0: My good friend, Reverend Harry, who does a lot of ministry in urban areas, is here to share with us today. He uh, finished writing, I don't know which book this is for you, Rev. Fifth book. It's uh, called Street Cred. It's right there on the outside of the foyer there on your left side as you exit. And um, whenever I have a question about urban ministry or things that are going on in my mind uh, in regards to that, I, I give Reverend Harry a call. Um, We also share a a like mentor uh, in Jay Alfred, a very dear man of God and friend and mentor of ours. So, would you help me welcome Reverend Harry? You know, whenever a man of God opens up his pulpit on a Sunday morning to let you share with his flock, it's indeed an honor, and an honor that one does not take lightly. How many people are thankful for Pastor Albert Lee and his ministry here at Regent Church? Amen, amen. I also want to thank uh, Brother David Berta for, Dave, are you here? I don't see you. There you Stand up. Stand up, brother. Stand up and wave with, wave with the audience. Dave came and got me early this morning to bring me here, and I kept him waiting. Sorry about that. But I really appreciate that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a second, please, as we go to the throne of grace. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you today, Lord, and we say thank you. God, thank you because you said in the word where two or three were gathered together in your name, that you would be in the midst. So, God, we know that you're here. Now, Lord, I pray that as we continue in this portion of the service, that you'd anoint these lips of clay and that only you would be heard. I stand behind the cross so, God, the folks can hear your voice anoint not only my tongue and lips, but their ears to hear what thus saith the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you please open with me to Matthew, the 20th chapter. Matthew, the 20th chapter, and I'll be reading from the NIV version. And I'm going to say, do as we do at the Baptist Church, I'm going to say, when everyone has that, please say Amen. Amen. If you're still turning, say, hold up. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Matthew chapter 20, we'll start at verse 17. Amen. I see a few pages still turning. You know, one thing I really appreciate about this church is that this is a Bible-believing church. I remember when I first became a believer, I remember turning on a television show And there was this preacher, and he was saying some things that didn't seem to coincide and align themselves with the Word of God. And I realized something. All the people in the audience had Bibles, but nobody was reading from them. They were just kind of like lap ornaments. So you have a pastor here who really believes in the Word of God and trains the congregation to measure what they're hearing by that Word. Amen? Amen. Verse 17 says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes immediately they received their sight and followed him. Today we'll be sharing from the theme, What's in your heart? Samuel Jackson is one of my favorite movie actors. I love the way that he brings his characters to life on the screen. Jackson has this deep declarative baritone voice that immediately captures your attention. You know it anywhere. I imagine that's why they use his voice for that Capital One credit card commercial. <laughs> you know the commercial of which I speak. You can't turn on the internet. You can't watch your television set for five minutes without seeing it. No matter how far-fetched the storyline, the commercial always ends with the one sentence, what's in your... hmm the marketing gurus who sit up at night creating those commercials put hours and hours into creating a phrase that will resonate with millions of people in the world that we live in today. What's in your The question is phrased not only to make you think about the value of their credit card. It is announced through the television set to make you instantly evaluate the meaning of your life the sum total of your existence, your security, the distance you've traveled in life. In the day and time that we live in, the question, what's in your wallet, defines you. In this hour of crass materialism, it is the yardstick by which one person measures him or herself against another. That 30-second commercial broadcasts a profound subliminal message. Show me what's in your wallet and I will tell you who you are. In this portion of scripture, we will see that Jesus lived by another value system entirely. And that he would be born that he was born to make a decision on this day about serving two impoverished disabled men on a lonely desolate dusty road in an ancient million in an ancient time long ago, before a crowd of curious and, and uh, uh, curious drifters and onlookers in a near-forgotten outpost of the Roman Empire called Israel. Verse 17 falls with the weight of a judge's gavel on a wooden pallet, mallet. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, the citadel of Jewish cultural and spiritual thought. And the the Passover was a tumultuous time. It was the hour when revolutionaries and prophets rose from the masses seething at the oppressive taxes and freedom restraints imposed by the military regime called Rome. Passover by its very meaning brought to the forefront thoughts of revolution and political upheaval. And Jesus who is primarily at this time a a country preacher, pronouncing the good news of the kingdom of God in villages and hamlets, moves forward to the nation's seat of power. Expectations and whispers swirl around him. Is this the time when the descendant of Israel's first liberator David will shed off the cloak of humility and through his great miracle-working power, bring oppressor Rome to his very knees. Jesus' followers seem to be of that mindset, and he directly contradicts their grandiose visions of political power for Jesus and their personal aspirations as well. In verse 18, Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law." They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Whoa! Jesus says, in essence, the enemies that I often debate with, the religious leaders that I'm at odds with, they're going to condemn me to death and then send me over to the oppressors. They're going to betray me to the Romans. And then I'm going to be flogged. Now, flogging was a a nasty little business, wasn't it? How many people can still remember Mel Gibson's epic, The Passion of the Christ? Do you remember the, the scene where the drunken soldiers take a cat of nine tails with bits of bone and razor woven into its tentacles and smash it against Jesus' bare back? In your mind's imagination, stand before Jesus on that desolate road. Look into his tortured eyes as he considers what waits at the end of the road ahead. A fate which no other human being has ever been asked to endure. A fate which none of his followers can even fathom. They are so far away from the reality that he lays out about the impending destiny ahead of him, so diametrically opposed to the the future that they have envisioned for him that they can't even see it. And so here you find that directly after Jesus has just poured out his heart and uttered the darkest sayings in the Gospels, that in verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons comes up to Jesus with her disciples, he's he's with his disciples, she kneels down and she asks a favor of Jesus. It is the most self-serving request that anyone could ever conjure. Basically what she's saying is, we believe that it's all going to be going down in Jerusalem, and when the smoke clears, Jesus, you will be seated on the throne governing the whole known world. Make my boys here your vice president, and secretary of defense. She has completely ignored everything that he just said. I mean, Jesus says, I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. He just said, I'm going to be betrayed by the very people who we looked up to be our religious leaders. And then he says something really unusual. He said, I'm going to rise from the grave. But they are so rooted in their own agenda. That they can't see that. The only thing they can, they can see, the, the only thing in their mind is how can we profit from this situation? How can I exploit my relationship with Jesus to the fullest degree possible? Have you ever felt alone in a crowd of people? Imagine what Jesus is going through here. He knows that he's going to be ridiculed. He knows that he's going to be tortured. He knows that he's going to lay naked on the cross, writhing in anguish and agony before his enemies. His mother's going to be there looking at him. He knows that soon he will bear the slimy, greasy, malodorous sins of the world on his sinless body. And who knows whether at this point he understands that the people who are fighting to share his glory will run at the first sign of trouble. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals. What would be going through your mind? If it was me, I'd probably be morose. I'd be contemplative. I'd be fearful, and I'd probably be a tad bit resentful. But Jesus uses this insult moment as a teaching platform. He flips the paradigm of personal greatness on his head. It's not what your title is. It's not what's in your wallet. No, in verse 26, Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here comes the object lesson. The illustration of what Jesus has just said. In the distance, two men call out to Jesus. The scripture tells us that they are men without sight. Growing up, I had a friend who had vision issues, but there were organizations set up to assist him. There was a place called the Lighthouse for the Blind where he could receive services. Eventually, he got a career job working for the federal government that made accommodations for his sight limitations. But back in ancient Israel, there was no such help. To be born blind might mean to live a life of begging, of humiliation, of degradation. And we can see this in the story because as the two men by the side of the road begin to cry out to Jesus, the crowd who might have been used to seeing them there day in and day out for decades tells them basically, shut up, y'all. They're low on the totem pole of status within the community, they are not cherished, they are not thought highly of by the crowd. What's in your wallet? Not much for them, but nevertheless, Jesus' eyes shift in their direction. And I want to concretize what happens next into three points about real religion. Number one, real religion will cause one to become acutely aware of suffering. If there was a large crowd following Jesus, that meant there were a lot of people calling out Jesus' name. Jesus, Jesus. He ignored them for the most part. His face was set toward Jerusalem. But he heard the voices, the high-pitched voices of people who cried out for help. Had Had he not just told his disciples that the Son of Man had come not to be served, but to serve, the two blind men uttered the same phrase twice, at least twice. Jesus turned his eyes in their direction. One of Oakland's most thoroughly revered heroes is or, Miss Orally Brown. Does anybody know who she is? Does anybody know who Miss Orally Brown is? Amen. Amen. A couple people. In 1987, Miss Brown walked into a store in East Oakland where she was approached by a little girl. And the little girl said, Miss, my family's hungry back home. My mama doesn't have any food in the house. She said, would you help us? Miss Brown thought that the little girl might be scamming her, you know, trying to get a few treats, some, some candies, some chocolates or something. But no, the little girl said, I want you to buy me some lunch meat and, and some cheese and some bread, things that a child would not ask for. Miss Brown her those things, but that night, you know, you can have some experiences that just soak themselves into you. You go home and you start thinking about it. Ms. Brown probably tossed and turned in her bed that night, and the next day, Ms. Brown went to the, the local school where the, she assumed that the little girl went. She went to the principal's office, and she said, you know, I met this little girl, and the girl was in trouble, and I want to contact with her perhaps to see what else she could do to help her. So they took her from one class to the other in that little school in East Oakland, and she could never find the little girl. She never saw her. But she—they took her into a, a one classroom and it was all first graders, and she looked at them and I believe that she heard the words of Melly Mel, the hip hop prophet, in her mind. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too because only God knows what you'll go through. You'll grow in the ghetto, living second rate. And your eyes, they sing a song of deep hate. The places you play and where you stay looks like one great big alleyway. You'll admire all the number book takers, thugs, pimps, and pushers, and the big money makers. Driving big cars, spending 20s and 10s, and you want to grow up to be just like them. Smugglers, gamblers, burglars, even panhandlers. You say, I'm cool. I'm no fool, but you wind up dropping out of high school. Now you're unemployed, all non-void, walking around like your pretty boy Floyd. Turn stick up, kid. Look what you done did. Got sent up for an eight-year bid, prison sentence. Now your manhood is took, and you're a tag. You spend the next two years as an undercover, being used and abused to serve like, to one day you was found hung dead in a cell. It was plain to see that your life was lost. You was cold and your body swung back and forth. Now your eyes, they sing a sad, sad song of how you live so fast and die so young. So don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. Makes you wonder how I keep from going under. She looked at those first graders, never knew, didn't know them, didn't have a lot of money. And something inside of her just, the words just leapt out of her mouth. She said, if you will stay in school till you get to 12th grade, I will make sure every one of you is able to go to college. She was a poor real estate person, didn't have a lot of money, but something of how she came and in, she intersected with these young people and realized that her life could not be the same. Years later, she ended up on Oprah Winfrey's couch. Tell them what happened next. If you look her up on the Internet, you'll find out that Miss Oral Lee Brown of Oakland, California, sent 138 young people to college. It all started with that innocent. Little encounter with her and that little girl. Um, in, a, in a world where 10 cities have, are springing up all over the Bay Area, you got sick and elderly people living under the 580. In the world of the microchip, where, the, where inner city Oakland kids are, are not getting the education that will allow them to compete for jobs in Silicon Valley. In a world where California built 21 prisons in the time that it built one university. Have you been acutely aware of the suffering that's around you? You know, when I first moved to Oakland, I came here in 2002. I was born in New York City. Lived in, on the outskirts of Philadelphia a lot of my life, for some of my life. Lived in, lived in inner city neighborhoods. So when I moved to Oakland, I realized that the street, they had tree-lined streets in East Oakland. Freshly manicured lawns. And when people began to tell me that it was a dangerous place or that Oakland was the third most dangerous city in America, I started to, I looked at them and I almost laughed. I said, what are you talking about? There's no no 30-story housing projects here. You know, everything's so neat and clean. I lived in East Oakland about a week before I figured out what they were talking about. (laughs) I was laying on my bed one night, and I, I write about this in my book, Street Cred, I was laying on my bed at night and all of a sudden I heard gunshots. And it wasn't just one person shooting. It was at least two people. And one of them had a high-power weapon. So when they fired it, it just said, poof, poof! <laughs> After a while, I dropped to the floor, because that's what they tell you to do when the bullets start flying. I dropped to the floor, and sooner or later, you saw a police helicopter shine a beam down on the front of my house where I lived at. The next morning when I walked outside, I, I went to the corner store, and they had already set up a shrine there. And I looked around myself, and I said, where am I? What kind of place is this? And there was a gang called Eleven Five. 5 is actually the California penal code for drugs that controlled that neighborhood for generations. And they were fighting over drugs. I think they were fighting over drug territory, but bodies were dropping all the time. And I said to myself as I moved around Oakland, there are churches everywhere. You can't, you can't go a block in Oakland without finding out churches, but, but why aren't the churches out here where the people really need Jesus? And so I began to go out to the corner where the guys were selling drugs, and they had, they had it set up so the drugs and the money were never in the same place. So if the police ran up on one person, they, they'd never get the whole operation. Because if you, anybody ever seen The Wire, the TV show, The Wire, it was run like The Wire. So, and the people who really made money from it were never there. It was only the, the guys making the minimum wage of the drug market were actually out there. But I went out there, and I said, don't you realize you're risking your life out here? And they said, mister, we got, we got records. I can't go to Best Buy and get a job. I, I, I can't go to the supermarket and get a job anymore. Even though I've served my time, I, I can't get a regular job. They said, this is the only way I could put Pampers on my baby's bottom." And I remember there was one young man. I would see him all the time out there. He used to wear a black turban. And I used to say, son, this is not the way to go. This is going to get you into trouble one day. And I moved eventually from that neighborhood. But every year they put up a a list. They used to put up a list of homicide victims in the Oakland Tribune. Anybody remember seeing that? They would tell you who died that year and what number they were. And one one year I looked on that list and his face was on that list. And I began to wonder, what's going on? Where is the church? These people say that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But how come they're not concerned about trying to do anything for these young kids out here? Do you know that there are food deserts in Oakland? Do you know that there are impoverished areas where where children can only buy sweet cookies and sodas, but you can't buy fresh fruit or vegetables? We're religion. Somebody say, we're religion. I heard two people say it. Somebody say, real religion causes folk to be acutely aware of suffering. Point number two, real religion is inconvenient. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals. You've got a lot in your mind at this point. You were headed toward the agony of the cross. The moment is going to come when God the Father is going to actually hide his face from the sin that covers your body. The people around you who today are grinning and smiling are going to be the first ones gone when trouble strikes. Who's going to take care of mama? And in the middle of all your thoughts, there's somebody else who's asking for help. Real religion is inconvenient. At Regen, Regen, I bet you is no different than a lot of other churches. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done here. And you, some of you have gotten requests from, from pastor or some of the church leaders. To, hey, can you do this? Can you stay a little bit later? Can you come another night? Can we ask you to, to step into this role here? And uh, they've asked you in face-to-face. Sometimes they might give you a phone call. And what do we say? Uh, pastor? This is an inconvenient time in my life. I got this going on, I got that going on. Real religion is messy and real religion is inconvenient. The call of ministry does not wait until your schedule frees up or until all the ducks line up in a row. These men called out to Jesus in an extremely inconvenient moment and he stopped what he was doing so that he could help. Let me put it to you like this. I lived in Harlem, New York at the height of the crack epidemic in the the 80s. If you're young, you you don't remember when there was a time when there was no such thing called crack. I basically remember the day that crack became crack. When it it just one day it wasn't there and one day it was. And I remember you would go outside in the morning when I lived in Harlem, which is an epicenter for crack back then and it would be like somebody threw rain down these little capsules from the sky. that would litter the whole streets. Back in those days, there were these drug dealers who made lots of money selling crack. One of them was a guy named Alpo. Alpo was a Harlem drug dealer, and in the words of Ice-T, he was dazed by the game in in a quest for extreme wealth. As a young man, Alpo turned New York City's streets red with blood. Reflecting back from a prison cell where he's spending life in prison today, he recalled that once there was a family that took him in uh, through the Fresh Air Fund. And these people lived in the Adirondack Mountains out in the country where he could run around in the green grass. And they fell in love with little Alpo. Alpo's mother, they asked Alpo's mother, they said, you know what, the city is not a place for Alpo. Why don't you let Alpo come and stay with us and he can come back and visit you on the weekends and on the holidays? AlPO's mother said, "No, no, no. His place is here with his mother." Well, the streets eventually poisoned AlPO, and one of the things that happened was, when he became incarcerated, he realized that if somebody from the outside of his world had become a big brother to him, as somebody in the outside of the world had chosen to be a mentor to him, they would have helped him to see that there was more to the world than the streets. Friends, there are organizations in Oakland like um, the Boys Club and Big Brothers and and Girls Inc. that have long waiting lists begging for men and women like you to take some child on a Saturday morning, Just, just give them a couple hours a week to help them to understand that there's a world beyond International Boulevard and 86th Avenue. There are organizations like Shade and Regina's Door and Missy begging for willing hands. Why don't people jump up to save the next apple? Because it's inconvenient. But real religion is inconvenient. It causes you to put your problems on hold so you can help somebody else. My last point, point number three. Real religion begins with compassion. Verse 34 says... Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and they followed him. Take note of the word compassion. It's one of the most telling insights into the personality and power of Jesus Christ. The power to do the miracles came from the will to do the miracles. And the will to do the miracles was rooted in Jesus' compassion. He didn't just say, be healed. He touched them. The word compassion means that Jesus was moved in his guts. It means that Jesus was moved in the the seat of his emotions. It means that Jesus was moved in his entrails. We live in such a selfish world. A world where it's me first. A world where people ask, we made it. Why can't they? A world where our nation's leaders propose a health care plan that will cause 24 million people to lose coverage and then look into the TV camera and have the nerve to say, it's going to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Jesus had a unique brand of compassion. I'm a fan of the old Star Trek series. Some of you guys only know Star Trek from the movies. Some of you know Star Trek from the kind of the Ospens, but unless you've watched Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Scotty, you don't know Star Trek. But there was one episode where there was this alien woman called the succubus who could touch a suffering person and absorb their pain. Their agony became her agony. That's what compassion is. Real religion, somebody say real religion. Begins with, begins with. Compassion. compassion. I was walking down International Boulevard on a Friday night, and that's what this is. That's this something happened that gave me the idea for this sermon. I fell in behind three young girls who could have been my granddaughters. They were scantily clothed. Uh, they, they were, uh, you could tell, even though they were only teenagers, they, were, they, were, uh, they, they looked older than their years. Clearly, they were human trafficking victims. Now, some of you don't know how human trafficking works. Let me tell you because I started an organization at Allen Temple Baptist Church that helped to help young people who get caught up in this situation called the Street Disciples. So in the, in the inner city, you, you might be a foster child and you age out of the foster care system and you have no one to help you. It's just you. I, you know, I talked to a young man I was in the coffee shop a couple of weeks ago, and he, was, uh, he had gotten a Ph.D. from Cornell in physics. And we were talking about his life, and he, talked to, he told me about how his mother would take him to the library on Sunday afternoons and, and, and what, what she poured into him to help him get where he was at such a young age. And what I began to realize is that each one of us is a product of our world, the world we come from, the people who poured into our lives, the people who shape reality in our imaginations. So these young girls are living in a situation where they might have been foster children, their own parents might have abandoned them because of drugs or become incarcerated, or who knows, but there they are walking the streets, waiting to be poured on by these men who come in from the suburbs, one after another, for the pennies that they get. They don't even get to keep the pennies they they are held captive they are slaves human slaves to pimps who who don't who, who don't do anything but just collect the money and most of them won't live to be 30 and if they do you should see what they look like human trafficking is an epidemic in Oakland California where you're sitting right now walking distance from here and the sad thing is that most of the girls that I've seen are trafficked in front of church buildings. You know, the, we are sitting in a city where multitudes of people are crying out for help, crying out for mercy. And as I looked at those young girls, and as I, I, I was, ironically, I was going to an event about human trafficking at the East Side Alliance. And as I looked at those little girls in front of me, I wondered, Whose child are you? Who belongs to you? Who are your cousins? Did anybody ever invite you to Sunday school? Has anybody who calls himself a Christian ever reached out to you and told you that they love you and there's a way for you? I wondered that as I watched them walk into the cold winds of forever. Friends, Jesus is calling on us today to make some decisions. It's not convenient to serve God. Religion is not convenient. Jesus was a person of great compassion. But as this church, we be- be- this is- religion has become codified and institutionalized. And no longer are we known as the people of compassion. We just come into a building on Sunday morning, sing some songs and say, didn't we do our part for God today? Jesus is calling on more from us. Finally, you might be on that roadside. Today, you might come in here today and you say, Preacher, I'm hurting. I'm one of those lost, forgotten, disinherited, marginalized people. I'm I'm hurting. I'm one of the people you write about in your book, Street Craig. I'm hurting. I'm I'm broken inside. I'm smiling inside, and I smell nice, and I look nice, but I'm I'm not tickled inside because something has really gone wrong in my life. Somebody here, you you struggled for a long time, and you prayed to God, and your faith has grown weak over the matter that you pray about. It might be your marriage that doesn't seem to work out like you want to. You might be a single person, and it seems like you'll never come into that right relationship. It might it might be a job that you just can't seem to get, and some people have become so frustrated with God that we cease to call out to Him. I want you to remember something from this story. Those men cried out to Jesus more than once before Jesus responded. God is yet with you. Don't let anything stop you from crying out. Jesus is passing your way. Reach out for him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I thank you that you have been so faithful over us. Because we've been by that roadside, oh God, and you've reached out to us. Some of us in this room have been saved from some incredible things. Our lives would not be the same, we would not have the same purpose if it wasn't for you. you no, know, God, I call, we call out to you from a place called Oakland, California. Specifically, God, we're calling to you from East Oakland, California. God, we live in a world where people are in trouble. Gentrification is driving people out of their homes. People are losing their homes to foreclosure, living under bridges. We're going to pass them on the way home. God, there are young children who have forced into prostitution here. There are people who have lost hope. God, you have called us to be your hands and feet. Use us, God, and twist our will to, to align itself with yours. God, let the compassion that dwelt in you dwell in us.